Okay, today let me uh let me just start off by apologizing on the front end. Um man, I have a sore throat and just feeling bad this week, so um you may have to deal with some some uh extraordinary coughing and some uh deep raspy sounding stuff. Uh I'm sorry about that, but um not really something I can help. Uh we're in the middle of um the blowing of the seven trumpets. Last time we saw that the uh the the trumpet judgments uh, parallel the the uh, plagues of Egypt, and we remembered um, that the the bringing of the plagues of Egypt back upon the people was uh, it was one of the co- covenant judgments that God promised to the people of Israel if they broke covenant uh, that He made with them, broke the covenant that He made with them. Um, so we saw, you know, we saw hail and fire upon the land, saw a burning mountain being thrown to the sea, wormwood uh, causing the waters uh, to turn poisonous, darkness striking the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, stars. Uh, that was the first four trumpets, and if you haven't listened to the the previous podcasts, uh, you definitely need to go back and pick all those up. Uh, we went into a lot of depth about what all those symbols mean from the Old Testament and and how they applied to the original re- recipients of the letter. Uh, more specifically, we 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 made the case that all these uh, events are uh, prophecies of the Jewish war as the Romans uh, swept through the land, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and and inevitably destroyed the city, the temple, um, and biblical Judaism uh, for good. Um, so just as God used the Babylonians to judge the people and destroy the city centuries before, uh, now he is, uh, he's using the Roman army to judge his people and destroy, um, to kind of destroy the last vestiges of the old religion that rejected, uh, the fulfillment, um, in the, in the death and resurrection of God's, uh, of God's Messiah, um, we're going to see this continue as we move forward, but if you've just joined us uh, in, in in this episode, you you definitely need to go back and pick up the previous ones because uh, you need to get the foundation under you and the in depth uh, explanations of uh, our methodology and and uh, and using the Old Testament to interpret the symbols that John's seeing. It's going to really help you um, to do that. You you uh, probably aren't going to be able to just jump in the middle. I, I've seen a lot of people are doing that, and they, they're they um, sending me questions and emails and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's going to really help you as well. If you go to jasonvelada.com and go to the Revelation uh, page where all these uh, audio links and all that are there, and download the outline that goes with this chapter. Uh, in that outline, all the references that I make, all the quotes from Josephus, pretty much everything I reference... Uh, will be there already written down so you don't have to scramble try to write stuff down and you know I don't lose you in the middle of a long quote uh, from some ancient writer you know I've been quoting some some big things and it's easy as I ramble through it just kind of tune out so uh, those are all written for you there so let's get into chapter nine and we're going to spend we're going to spend the whole chapter looking at the fifth and the sixth trumpet so it's just two trumpet judgments in this uh, in this chapter verse one says And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. Um, Translations vary right there at that point. But uh, the first thing we need to do is we need to talk about the star that that had fallen from heaven. Uh, We've seen this picture before in the last chapter when the third trumpet blew. Uh, Some believe that this is uh, a different star from the one that we saw. Uh, There's other people that believe it's the same star that we saw in the last chapter of the Wormwood. Um, 
But the thing that you need to be aware of is that the word fallen here is in in the perfect tense in Greek. So uh, it it means that John saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. Uh, The falling of the star had already taken place as John records this. He didn't see, it's important to understand, he's not saying "I, I was looking and I saw a star that was falling from heaven. He's saying I looked and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven. He saw a star that it's in the perfect tense that had already fell is a completed action in the past. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, but even from this verse, you, you, you have to at least acknowledge that the star is a personal agent. You know, there's a lot of people with a lot of different views about this star or whatever. Uh, but it's a personal, personal being, a personal agent, because here it's given, uh, he's given the key to the, the pit to, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but uh, pretty much everyone agrees here that this is definitely a reference to either, to either Satan himself or some demonic personal agent, uh, of judgment that has been, uh, uh, let loose upon the land. Uh, I guess it's possible that it could be the same. It could be some kind of good angel, but the reference to him falling from heaven it just evokes the imagery of Satan being cast out of heaven in Isaiah 14. Uh, in that chapter, judgment Isaiah 14, judgment is being leveled against the king of Babylon, uh, but it it also transitions to speak about the evil power that's behind the Babylonian kingdom in Isaiah 14:12. Through 13 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who, uh, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mountain of the assembly. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Uh, so a lot of uh, correlation between what Isaiah sees, what Isaiah says there and what John is seeing. But it seems like even a more, uh, uh, more uh, parallel um, uh, usage is what we see in Jesus's uh, words um, in Luke chapter 10. If you remember the context of Luke 10, Jesus had just sent out the disciples and they had gone forth preaching and, and, and witnessing and testifying to the kingdom of God. And, uh, they were coming back and they were reporting all the things that, uh, that had happened. They said, even the demons are, are subject to us and all those things. And Jesus in Luke 10 verse uh, 18 and 19 it says this, and he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Um, it, it's uh, We haven't gotten to it yet, but it's it'll be instructive for us to notice that in this chapter, we're going to see both uh, pictures of, of uh, scorpions. We're going to see locusts that have given been given the power of scorpions, and we're going to see uh, later on. You're going to see the picture of a horse tail with scor- with a serpent, a horse with serpent's tail, and, and so we see in this chapter we see three images that Jesus uh, uh, speaks of in this in these few verses in Luke chapter ten. You see scorpions, you see serpents, you see uh, uh, one falling from heaven, and in this chapter he. Says, says, I saw one that had fallen from heaven. And then he says, you know, he gives them power over scorpions and, 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 and all those things. So it, it's a very safe conclusion, I think, to say that John is referencing 
what Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 10. Uh, he referenced the fall of Satan with the going forth of the gospel and the kingdom of God being preached in power by the disciples as they went out. So it's pretty safe to say that this star had fallen from heaven and was given this key. Uh, it's most likely Satan himself or, or an agent of Satan. Um, so that's the star falling from heaven. What about this pit? This uh, this bottomless pit. Um, the he's given the key to this pit. Most of your translations are going to call it uh, a pit or the bottomless pit or something like that. But the word it used is abyss. Uh, in Greek, it's abusas. And uh, in fairness, the word can it can have the the connotation of being without a bottom. So uh, that translation is a good translation. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, or, or it can be, you know, depending on the context, it can be just extremely deep or at the heart of the earth. Um, but the text says that he's given the key to the well of the abyss. Uh, that's why it's translated the shaft of the bottomless pit, uh, so often. So you may have, uh, you may have heard people describe hell as being a sensation of falling forever because it's a bottomless pit. Um, I, you know, I, I get that, but I think that that's taken the language just a little further than it's intended to go. Um, it, it says he was given the key to the abyss. And so if we want to find out what this abyss is, we want to find out what, uh, images that, uh, that John is evoking, uh, for us and what we should take from it. Um, I'm pretty sure by now, you know what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to look in the rest of scripture and find out. Uh, what this what this abyss uh, is and how it's used and and see if we can determine from the context what uh, what he's trying to what he's trying to say. Um, you see the 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 scriptures about the abyss over and over again in in Job forty one. I'm not going to read all these to you, but in Job forty one, the quote unquote abyss. Uh, is the abode of the sea dragon, uh, Leviathan, and you know a lot of times if you listen to the um, the uh, the uh, study on the book of Job that we did, when you get to Leviathan, uh, what you what you find is that Leviathan is a um, um, I don't want to say a metaphor, but I want to say it is a, it's a picture of uh, the cosmic evil that's uh, that uh, reigns through through the world system, so to speak. And and so the the abode of the sea dragon in the deep in the abyss uh, several times both in Job and in Jonah um, it is uh, it's the heart of the deep you know Jonah said I'm down here in the abyss from the from the abyss I called upon you and you answered me and of course we know that Jonah was in the belly of a fish down in the bottom of the ocean um, in Isaiah twenty four twenty one. Um, God uh, says that he will punish the, both angels and evil kings by confining and punishing them in the abyss. Uh, so that's a place of uh, punishment where God promises the evil um, beings will, uh, will dwell. And in Luke 8, verse 31, it's a text that you probably know very well, um, where Jesus uh, encounters uh, the man filled with uh, the man filled with uh, demons, uh, the demons beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs rather than to send them into the abyss. So they know that uh, they know that the abyss is the uh, the place of punishment, the place of uh, the dwelling place of uh, of evil of the demonic realms. Um, in Revelation itself, we're going to see that the abyss is where the beast and the dragon are going to be confined. You're going to we're going to see that in Revelation eleven seven, uh, Revelation seventeen eight, Revelation twenty. 
Um, and then in Romans, even Romans chapter 10, Paul says that the abyss is the realm of the dead. Um, and of course, in, in Romans chapter 10, he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. He says, you know, that's the that's the point where it's, uh, you know, who's going to ascend up to heaven? Who's going to go down into the deep to to bring it? It's nigh unto you. The word is nigh unto your mouth. Um, the, the word for deep there is the word abyss. And so based on all these references and there there's others that i'm i'm leaving out of course uh we know that the abyss that satan is given the key to here um it, it's the place of it's a place of confinement a place place of punishment it's a place of evil a place where where uh, where demons dwell and where the demons were sent and we know from luke 8 that the demons begged jesus not to send them them there um they certainly knew that this was a place that they would go uh, when they begged Jesus not to send them there. And uh, and later we're going to see it's where the beast and the dragon are going to be sent. Uh, so in one sense, you could say that indeed it is hell. Um, it's not exactly the same as the lake of fire, which we'll see later on. Uh, that is hell in its fullest and ultimate sense. But when the abyss gets opened here in a minute, um, it will definitely be like hell is released Hell is released upon earth. But before we move into that, make sure you recognize that the key to the abyss is given to the star that had fallen. Uh, the only authority he has is what he has been given. Uh, it is, it's God who's still in control, even in the midst of, of these judgments, even uh, more than halfway through the trumpet judgments now, we see that the language is still being used that shows that God is in, is in control. Um, all these incredibly terrifying pictures we're about to see, they're brought about under the authority of an all-sovereign God who is bringing judgment upon the land. Um, that's a hard concept for people to accept, but, but um, God uses evil means to bring about his own good purposes. Uh, you see it over and over again in Scripture. God brought the wicked Assyrians and used them as the rod of his judgment. He even says, Isaiah chapter 10, uh, I am going to wield them like a, like a man wields an axe. Uh, later, you, you see the wicked Babylonians. He, he brings them to Jerusalem to bring his judgment upon them. Um, in, in fact, this was the main problem uh, that Habakkuk had with God. If you read the book of Habakkuk, uh, he couldn't understand how God... Uh, could use these wicked Bab Babylonians against his own chosen people. And so you see it over and over again. Even in the midst of all this, right now there's a lot of fear in in America, um, wherever, you're, wherever you're listening from. In America there's a lot of fear about uh, the election this year and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and, you know, all these things and just the decline of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, the acceptance of uh, of religion and, and religious freedom and and all these things are going on. We're seeing persecutions. We're seeing it's almost to be honest with you. There's there's a lot of people calling, and I didn't. I'm not going to turn this into a political thing, but there's a lot of people saying that um, it's clear that America is under uh, under the judgment of God because we um, are getting exactly you know society is turning and being allowed to turn exactly the way that uh, we deserve. Um, and, and there's a lot of fear, a lot of angst, a lot of things going on. Uh, but a as believers, we have to understand that even if that's so, and you know, I'm just using this as an example, even if that is so in the judgment, uh, we're, we're under judgment and it's all kind of evil 
about to take place and all kind of bad and society's about to go down the toilet, we still understand that God is in control. God is sovereign and we look forward to uh, his purposes and his plans. We understand that he is he is the one that he's the one that's in control. And so the key here is given to the the star that had fallen from heavens given uh, to satan he didn't have the authority on his own to do anything uh he is uh, given that authority by god uh and and there's something we're going to have to remember that as we're faced all the way through the book of revelation we're going to see horrible things go on we're going to see awful judgments that happen and we need to understand that all these judgments are flowing out of the scenes that we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5 it's all coming from the judgment throne of god and the book that is opened by the lamb all these things are pouring forth from that sealed book so the key to this abode of demons this place of punishment is it's given to the star that had fallen and verse 2 says he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft so just like the scene from you know uh, some horror movie or something the the agent of judgment opens the abyss and smoke rises from it uh, the specific phrase the smoke uh, like the smoke of a furnace is used twice in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament, uh, which is most often quoted in the New Testament. Um, the, this phrase, like the smoke of a furnace, it's used in Genesis 19.28 to describe the uh, the judgment uh, upon Sodom and Gomorrah after God rained down fire and brimstone upon it. And we're going to see fire and brimstone here in this chapter as well. Uh, it says in, in Genesis 19.28, And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, and the other time it's used in the Old Testament is in Exodus 19.18, as God descended upon the mountain, uh, uh, mountain of Sinai. Uh, the people were warned not to come near the mountain or they would, would die. And it said, Now the mountain was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. That's Exodus 19.18. So in both pictures... You see, uh, you see smoke in, in, in some way related to the judgment of, of God. And so, um, it's referenced by that, that phrase smoke of a furnace. But even throughout the book of Revelation itself, uh, the rest of, uh, the rest of the text, throughout the, the rest of the book, we're gonna see that, uh, when we, when we see this, this smoke, it's, it's over and over again associated when, with judgment that's poured out. Uh, Revelation, uh, at the end of this chapter, chapter 9, Revelation 14, 18, uh, Revelation 19, we're going to see the smoke um, representing, uh, or, or not representing, but uh, showing the, the the effects of the judgment of God. Um, now, I don't want to give too much away right here at the beginning, but later we're going to see locusts pouring out of this abyss, and John is going to take much of the picture of these locusts from Joel's account of the locusts attacking the land of Israel in the book of Joel. But this smoke we see coming from the pit um, it, it also alludes to Joel. Uh, in Joel 2, verse 10, it says the, the, the smoke darkens the sun and the air. Uh, in Joel 2.10, it says before them, that's the locusts that are coming, the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. So you see, as the locusts are poured forth in Joel's prophecy, 
or Joel's recounting of uh, the locust uh, horde that comes to attack Israel. And there's some question whether that is actually locust or whether he's using that as a symbol of the uh, Assyrian army. Um, and we can we can argue about that back and forth. But uh, what you see is already the uh, the the stage is being set. The demonic realm is opened up. Uh, the it's opened up upon the land. And what happens next, man, is truly a terrifying thought. First, like I said, the locusts and these locusts like you, these are locusts like you and I have never seen before. They're going to come out of the abyss and they're going to infest uh, the land of the living. It says, verse 3 says, Then from the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Uh, these locusts will be, uh, throughout this chapter, they're going to be vividly described. Uh, and, and they're obviously demonic forces. Uh, they're not going to be regular locusts. We're going to see that when we get to the description of them. Um, they're going to be used as God's judgment upon upon the people of the land. Uh, locusts, just regular locusts, were they were legendary in the ancient world for their, for their destructive power. Uh, they destroyed crops, destroyed vegetation, uh, which caused famine, caused starvation, it caused pestilence and death. It caused, I mean, it, this was you know when when you and I hear of uh, you know. Uh, uh, a swarm of locusts or a swarm of whatever coming. We just go get in the house and, and whatever. When it's over, we'll go to Kroger and buy something to eat. It wasn't like that in the ancient, ancient world. Uh, that would affect the entire city's food supplies, the entire region's food supplies for, for years to come. I mean, you can imagine if you're a farmer, I live around a bunch of farmers. If you're a, if you're a farmer and all your food comes from, uh, the farming of the community that you live in and a swarm of locusts blows through and eats everything that you were uh, going to eat for an entire year and you just have to figure out what you're going to do uh, for that year and then hope that the crops do good the next year i mean it was they were they were legendary as destructive agents in the ancient world but even here, see the same thing. These locusts are given power like scorpions upon the earth. Uh, I'm sure you all know what a scorpion will do to you if it if it stings you. Uh, but other than that, we uh, we really don't know what's meant by this. But we will see later in the in this chapter that these uh, locusts that have been given power like scorpions are going to torment men. Uh, they're not going to be allowed to kill men, but they're going to torment them. But I can't get past the realization that in the very verse that Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning, he also says to the disciples, uh, those who have been sealed by God, uh, that they have power over the scorpions and the serpents. Uh, could this episode that we see here in Revelation have been what Jesus was talking about there uh, it sure, certainly should be considered, uh, and we're also going to see that these scorpions, these scorpions, these locusts don't have any power over those who have been sealed. Those uh, uh, 144,000, that great multitude that have been sealed by God. But before we move on into that, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Uh, we need to notice that power is once again given to them. Uh, they don't have any authority on their own. Uh, they aren't turned loose to do whatever they want. Uh, they are agents of God's judgment, and they will do only what he allows in his sovereign will. They will do only what he allows them to do. So even here, uh, we see in this awful picture, this horrible picture of of terrifyingly unimaginable judgment that we can't even fathom, uh, 
we see God's hand of restraint upon them. It says, you know, uh, it says in verse four, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Um, they're agents of God's judgment, and they're only going to do what he allows them to do. God himself, although he has set them loose in judgment on the land, he limits their power. He limits the effect that they have. Now, first thing you got to notice is these aren't typical typical locusts. I mean, locusts, what they do is they devour vegetation. They kill plants. They kill trees. They kill the vegetation of the land. But these locusts are not allowed to do so. Uh, it, it's kind of a parallel. I told you that some people, last time I told you that some people take the first five trumpets and uh, align them with the uh, plagues of Egypt. Well, this is the plague of, of locusts. And in Exodus chapter 10, verse 15, the plague of locusts that comes upon the land of Egypt does indeed destroy the vegetation. It, it, it's almost the same phrase. The green grass of the earth, the green plant or the tree, uh, that is exactly what the locusts in Exodus did destroy. But here it said that they were told not to harm the green grass or the earth or, or the trees. Uh, these locusts are sent to harm men, not not plants, not trees, not vegetation. Um, and, and also notice that in, in last time, in chapter 8, verse 7, uh, we saw that the green grass was destroyed by one of the seal judgments. Uh, but now the locusts are not told to harm the green grass. So it, it also you know, reconfirms our our uh, assertion that these are symbolic pictures of realities. There, it's not just saying that hey, the grass, all the grass in the world is going to be burned up, and there ain't going to be no grass anymore. Uh, these are realities. Uh, they're prophecies that are going to be fulfilled, but they're also symbols that we see uh, showing the judgment that's coming forth. The locusts are told not to harm the grass. Um, th this shows that these are symbols of a greater reality. Uh, they're also told not to harm the unsealed, those who have not the seal of God upon them. They are not allowed to harm God's people. And just like Jesus said, he said to his disciples when he came back, he said, you have power. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He said to you, I, I give the power to tread on scorpions and serpents. And uh, it's kind of just like the plagues of Egypt in the plagues of Egypt, Exodus 8, and Exodus 9, Exodus 10. Um, the, the plagues did not harm God's people. They did not harm, uh, the Israelites, uh, as they, as they did harm the Egyptians. And here he says they were not allowed. They were not allowed to, um, they were not allowed to touch, uh, the plants and vegetation, the creation. They were not allowed to touch those who had been sealed by God, but they were allowed to, uh, to bring judgment upon those who were, who were not sealed by, uh, by by God. Now, what exactly were they allowed to do to these people that were not sealed? In verse 5 it says they were allowed to torment them for 5 months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it when it stings someone. And verse 6 says in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die. But death, it will flee from them. Uh, these locusts in, in verse 5, they're, they're allowed to torment men, um, but not kill them. They are permitted to, to, uh, to torment men. Uh, many of your translations will say mankind. They will, 
allowed to torment mankind. That's actually a translational choice. Uh, the word is men. It's it's anthropoi, and it just means men. Uh, in certain contexts, it can mean all of mankind. Uh, but uh, it it, uh, it it begs the question that if you if you presuppose that this is a worldwide uh, worldwide judgment, you're going to translate it mankind. If you uh, if you presuppose that uh, uh, you you see this as a, a, a judgment fulfilled in the destruction of uh, the people, as something that's fulfilled in the first century, uh, you're going to translate it men. So many of the many of the translations are going to say mankind, but that is just a translational choice. Uh, the words anthropoid means men, so they're they're not allowed to kill men. But they're allowed to torment them for five months. Now, why five months? Um, That seems a little strange. Um, There's a whole lot of debate, and I'm not going to stand firm on. I have a position that I do believe it is, but, you know, I'm going to allow for others as well. Like I said, whenever we approach uh, Revelation, we're going to have to come with humility, understanding that we're far and away removed from these symbols, and we're going to have to... uh, um, to uh, interpret them based on what we know from from scripture, uh, some see this number as purely symbolic, having the sense of just a limited period of time, and that's certainly possible. We've seen that numbers used that way already in Revelation. We're going to see it again in Revelation. So that's absolutely possible that they're only going to be allowed to torment these men for a certain uh, time, and we're going to see that greater judgment is going to be poured out here in just a little bit. And so these these locusts, uh, and I'm using locusts in quotes, uh, they're only going to be allowed to uh, torment uh, but not kill for a time because greater judgment is going to be coming. Um, there's others, uh, that, uh, and all these are possibilities for sure. There's others that, uh, suggest that it's a reference to the time during which locusts commonly came through the region. Uh, usually from May to September was the, the season that locusts could, uh, could come through, but it's unusual for them to remain there for the whole five months. You know, usually, uh, they could come anytime from May to September. They would blow through, you know, eat everything, eat whatever they eat and then, and then move on. There may be another swarm that would come through during that time. It was the season, uh, for locusts, but usually they would go away, uh, by the time the winter, um, by the winter came. And so it was, just uh, the five months is just a, a picture of the fact that um, true locusts, real locusts, are are a seasonal creature, and it's not going to last long. If you they they're going to uh, they're going to come and bring their judgment and then move on. Um, that's certainly possible. Uh, there are some who think that this was. Uh, uh, is related to the actions of a, uh, a procurator in Judea named Gessius Florus, who, who, beginning in May of 66, he terrorized the Jews in Jerusalem, deliberately inciting them to rebellion. Uh, this is this is at this event, this date is when Josephus uh, dates the start of the Jewish war, and uh, and for five months is what uh, is what uh, from May to. Uh, May to September, uh, end of August is when that when that took place. Um, 
there's another guy, F.F. F. Bruce, in his New Testament history. Uh, he says that uh, uh, Titus began the final siege of Jerusalem in April of 70, and the city held out for exactly five months. But by the end of August, beginning of September, the city was occupied. Temple was burnt to the ground, and while the siege was going on, the people in the city went absolutely crazy. So this is what I want you to see. This is, and this is the this is the view that I hold. Well, who are these locusts? What are they? Before we describe them, and that's what Revelation is going to do next, uh, I'm going to tell you who they are. They are the demonic horde that was let loose in inside the city of Jerusalem as the Romans came and laid siege to it and surrounded it, and they wouldn't let anybody out, wouldn't let anything in. During that time, during that final siege, during that final, uh, it was off and on throughout the entire Jewish war. But during that final, uh, during that final siege, um, the people inside Jerusalem just went absolutely crazy. It was like all the demons of hell were released out into the city and they just ran back and forth doing the most mad things that you could possibly imagine. The reason why a lot of people don't realize uh, what this is speaking of in Revelation is because they don't have an accurate history, an accurate knowledge of exactly what happened during the uh, during the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, David Chilton writes, uh, and this is a quote from him in his book called The Great Tribulation. Uh, it says, the entire generation became increasingly demon-possessed. Their progressive national insanity is apparent as one reads through the New Testament, and its horrifying final stages are depicted in the pages of Josephus' Jewish War. The loss of all ability to reason, the frenzied mobs attacking one another, the deluded multitudes following after the most transparently false prophets, uh, the crazed and desperate chase after food, the mass murders, executions, and suicides, the fathers slaughtering their own families, and the mothers eating their own children, Satan and the host of hell simply swarmed through the land of Israel and consumed all the apostates. Uh, so what we see, and I'm going to read you some bigger quotes. All these quotes can be found on the outline if you want to go and read them. That way you don't have to scramble to try to write all this down. But it refers, these locusts, this releasing of this locust plague, uh, these demonic forces uh, upon the land, uh, it, it refers to the demonic activity inside the city as the Romans uh, surrounded Jerusalem. Let me read you a few quotes. And you, you, like I said, you test what I say and you take it or leave it, whatever, whatever you think. I'm just offering it to you. In uh, Wars of the Jews... Uh, or Jew, the Jewish War, either one. Uh, you can, either one. It's titled differently depending on whose translation you read. Um, in in Wars five one five, it says, "And now, as the city was engaged in a war on all sides, this is Josephus from these treacherous crowds of wicked men, uh, the people of the city. He's talking about the people inside the city. Between them were like a great body torn in pieces. The aged men and the women were in such distress by their internal calamities that they wished for the Romans." and earnestly hoped for an external war in order to deliver from their domestic miseries. 
The citizens themselves were under a terrible consternation and fear, nor had they any opportunity of taking counsel and of changing their conduct, nor were there any hopes of coming to an agreement with their enemies. This was all the people inside the city. Nor could such as had a mind flee, for guards were set at all places, and the heads of the robbers, this the factions inside the city, although they were seditious one against another in other respects, yet they agreed in killing those who wanted peace with the Romans, uh, or were suspected of inclination to desert the city as their common enemies. Uh, they agreed in nothing. These factions inside the city agreed in nothing but this, to kill those that were innocent. The noise also of those that were fighting was incessant, both by day and by night. But the lamentation of those that mourned exceeded the others, nor was there ever any occasion for them to leave off their lamentations because their calamities came perpetually one upon another. But for the seditious themselves, those that were uh, uh, running the factions of the city, they fought against each other while they trod upon the dead bodies as they lay heaped one upon another and taking up a mad rage from those dead bodies that were under their feet, they became fiercer thereupon. They, moreover, were still inventing somewhat or other that was pernicious against themselves. And when they had resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy and omitted no method of torment. There's our word or of barbarity. Remember these locusts were permitted to torment. But these locusts would not be the death of the city. They were just uh, they were just allowed to torment for those five months. And the complete destruction would come later. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, another quote from, from the Jewish War 5.10.5 says. It is therefore. This is Josephus speaking. And he was there at the Jewish War. It says. It is therefore impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. And then again, he says, in uh, in the Jewish War five thirteen six, he says, and here I cannot but speak my mind, and what the concern I am under dictates to me, and it's this: I suppose that had the Romans made any longer delay in coming against these villains, the city would either have been swallowed up by the ground opening upon them, or been overflowed by water, or else been destroyed by such thunder. Uh, as the country of Sodom perished by, for it had brought forth a generation of men much more atheistical than were those that suffered such punishments. For by their madness it was that all the people came to be destroyed. And so what you see, and, and we can go on, I, I would encourage you, there are a lot of great translations and very readily accessible translations of Josephus's Wars of the Jews, and you can read... Uh, it's very extensive, very extensive uh, descriptions of exactly what went on and what happened inside the city. 
uh, the names of the men who were seditious, the the factions that uh, that they led, uh, the the what the factions did to each other and to the people that were in the city as they just went. I mean, it was literally insanity. You would not believe uh, the things that were going on. I'm going to read you some more quotes later on, uh, but they were. There were men dressing up in women's clothes, uh, luring other men, and uh, I mean, just insanity going on. Heads being chopped off, people eating one another, uh, diseased bodies that were uh, being stacked into into houses uh, and doors locked just because there were nothing but rooms filled with dead bodies. Uh, there's a points where uh, the the dead bodies brought so much disease and so much pestilence uh, because they were just laying in the city and nothing could be done for it with them that the people started throwing them over the wall and uh, the pile got so big that Titus himself uh, walked by and looked at the pile of dead bodies and it says that that Titus was sorrowful for the sight that he saw uh, because of all the death and and and. Uh, um, just the insanity that went on inside the city. Um, this demonic, uh, these demonic locusts. Uh, when we talk about uh, when we talk about the the locusts from the pit, almost everybody understands. No matter what interpretation that you come from, whether you believe it's in the future, whether you believe it's in the past, whether you believe it's something that goes on th- throughout church history, uh, almost everyone is going to agree that these locusts are uh, demonic forces. They're uh, going to be described to us in a minute in ways that regular locusts just can't be can't be described. So we we all pretty much agree that they're demonic, uh, but what so many people fail to realize is these demonic forces were released into the city and it went absolutely insane as the Romans came and, uh, and laid siege uh, upon it. Uh, it went so, it was so bad that the, in verse 6, we read that a minute ago, it says that those that were uh, tormented by these locusts, they longed to die. They wished they could die, but uh, they weren't permitted to die even though they wanted it. And you need to understand that this was this is not a protection. Uh, they long to die and we're not allowed to die. This is not God protecting them, the unsealed or uh, those that uh, that uh, reject his name. This is not a protection. It's a punishment. They believed they believed. And I think rightly that death would be a release from their misery, but they weren't allowed to be released from their misery. Uh, they weren't allowed to die. They weren't allowed. And the point that he's making here is that not that no one was killed, uh, but that uh, this was not, uh, this would not end in the final judgment. This would not be uh, these, these demonic hordes that raged through the cities and, and infested the people inside the city uh, would not be the utter destruction of uh, the city and the temple and all those things. Um, it would not be, there were people that uh, were among the city that indeed did die, but uh, the majority of the people the majority of the people that were left when the Romans broke through were, if you can believe it or not, were happy. Were happy that the Romans finally broke through because they just wanted it to be over. They wanted it to be done. It was it was such madness, such torment, such terror that was going on in the city when they when they finally broke through the walls. The regular people, not the factious, not the seditious, they were they were glad. They were glad that it was just finally over. Uh, Josephus writes in 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 uh, Wars five ten uh, five ten two. It says. 
The madness of the seditious did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more, for there was no corn where anywhere anywhere appeared publicly. But the robbers came running into and searched men's private houses, and then if they found any, they tormented them, because they had denied they had any, and if they found none, they tormented them worse, because they supposed they had more carefully concealed it. And so, no matter what went on, we know the famine, we saw the plagues, the pestilence, all that going on, uh, The these demonic hordes uh, just plagued plagued the people and tormented them. Now, what I want you to see is that this is instructive uh, because Jesus himself predicted this demonic infestation uh, on the generation in Jerusalem in Matthew twelve forty three through 45. We've read this text many a times and, and you've seen it before. But uh, I don't know, you may not have ever put it together with what we're seeing here in Revelation. Uh, Jesus is telling, uh, he tells a little parable uh, to all these Jewish uh, Jewish leaders who have uh, uh, basically committed the unpardonable sin. They have attributed his work to uh, Beelzebub, he, the, to the prince of demons. And it says, it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now listen to the final phrase in verse 45. So also will it be with this generation. That's what Jesus said. Uh, He is there casting out demons. But when the demon is cast out, if nothing is brought forth, if they don't accept the Messiah and have the spirit indwell them and seal them, the demon is going to return. And not only is he going to return, he's going to bring seven more just like him. And the last state of the of the of the person is going to be worse than the first. And Jesus says, so will it be with this generation. And that's exactly what happened Uh, in the siege of Jerusalem. The demon horde was uh was set loose on the people and they went absolutely insane inside the city now let's uh let's look at the appearance of the locusts um whenever we see things like this in uh um in revelation we're going to see a a description of them and it's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before you're not going to be able to find any locusts that look like this um, <clears throat> but what you need to understand is John is seeing a vision. He's seeing a symbolic representation. Not that these aren't a real events or they don't pertain to real things, but they symbolize reality. Um, so what he's showing us is not what, not necessarily what they look like, but what they are like. Um, and so it says in verse seven, the appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads uh, were what looked like golden crowns. Uh, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing to battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months was in their tails. So that's a pretty gruesome description. You got crowns, you got human faces women's hair you got scorpion tails and stings you got um 
the appearance of horses, the sound of their wings was like horses. Um, the the locusts, first of all, let's just take it one step at a time. They appear as horses ready for battle. This refers to the locust plague that assaulted Israel in Joel's prophecy. Joel 2, verses 4 and 5 said, Their appearance, the locusts, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains like a crackling of flame of fire, consuming the stubble like a, like a mighty people arranged for battle. That's how Joel describes these locusts. So you see the same description of horses and the sound of chariots and all that kind of thing in, in Joel's description of locusts. Um, it's clear that John's seeing a similar vision to that of Joel. Uh, and, and it may be instructive to notice also that Joel's locusts also pour forth after the blowing of a trumpet. You can see that in, in chapter 2, verse 1 of Joel. Uh, Joel's locusts also torment men. Uh, Joel 2, 6 says, Before them, the people are in anguish. It's the same word, torment. All faces turn pale. Uh, the locusts have, here they have crowns on their head. They've been given authority uh, we've already seen that. Lots of speculation. We can't know for sure what the crowns symbolize other than just the authority to torment. They have they have both human and animal features. They have faces like humans. And and to me this this indicates that the locusts are actually uh taking the form of these men who are infesting Jerusalem. They're demonic uh they're demonic men who are demonically possessed. Uh, and are infesting this Jerusalem. The symbolism, uh, it definitely has something to say that they both have animal and, and human characteristics, and they, they also have characteristics of both sexes. You know, they have the faces look like men, yet they have women's hair. Uh, it's a very strange picture. It's a very uh, gruesome and apocalyptic picture. Um, there are some people who see the women's hair in their inclination. Men had the, uh, in the city, they had the inclination to dress up like women and lay in wait and attack uh, other people. It was very strange, very, very crazy. Uh, in uh, Wars of the Jews 4, 9, 10, it says, While their inclination to plunder was insatiable, as was their zeal in searching, searching the houses of the rich, and for the murdering of the men and abusing of the women, it was sport to them. They also devoured what spoils they had taken together with their blood and indulged themselves in feminine wantonness without any disturbance till they were satiated therewith. While they decked their hair and put on women's garments, they were besmeared over with ointments and that they might that they might appear very comely. They had paints under their eyes, which is makeup, and imitated not only the ornaments but also the lust of women, and were guilty of such intolerable uncleanness, and they invented unlawful pleasures of that sort. And thus did they roll themselves up and down the city as in a brothel house, and defiled it entirely with their impure actions. Nay, while their faces looked like the faces of women, they killed with their right hands, and when their their gait, their appearance was effeminate, they presently attacked men and became warriors, drew their swords from under their finely dyed cloaks, and ran everybody through whom they alighted upon." Um, the women's hair, <clears throat> the effeminate look of the locusts. You know, some have taken that to to be a parallel with what Josephus is is telling us there. The locusts have lion's teeth. Uh, same thing we see in Joel. Joel one six. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It's the same thing Joel sees. 
the jo- the the locusts have iron breastplates. Uh, they have wings that sounds like many chariots. We saw that they have tails like scorpions. Uh, scorpions are all, all are often associated with the power of Satan, uh, the enemy. We saw that already in Luke chapter ten. Uh, they have the stings of scorpions to hurt people, but they're only allowed to hurt people for uh, five months. Now, <coughs> my throat's getting sore. You have to excuse me. Um, we can go into depth about the the each one of these pictures, um, but the symbol the the symbols are you know they they're uh, they're not meant to walk on all fours. It is showing us uh, an a ghastly, unimaginable portrait of monstrous. Uh, monstrous judgment, demonic horde that has been set loose upon upon the land, uh, upon the the men of the land, the people of the land, and so um, we're not gonna. We could go into great detail about the symbols of all these things, but it, the monstrous picture that it shows is pretty much self-explanatory. This is it's unfathomable the the type of judgment that is being poured forth here. Uh, it's as if God finally just removed his hand and allowed uh, all of all of hell to break loose. I mean, hell literally was turned loose upon these people inside the city. Whether you take this as a description of prophesying that event or not, you cannot historically deny that hell was indeed turned loose upon the city inside Jerusalem as the Romans came and surrounded the city. It was it was madness and insanity, uh, something like we've never seen uh, we've never seen before. It was completely it was completely incredible. So uh, that is uh, finally the last part of the fifth trumpet is uh, verse verse 11 you see the ruler of these locusts they has a king they they have a king as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit his name in hebrew is abaddon his and in greek he is called uh, apollyon now both of these names mean destroyer they come from destruction uh, he's given the hebrew form he's given also the greek form this is this is obviously a picture of satan these people these uh these this horde of of demonic infestation that has taken place uh has as their ruler their chosen leader satan himself uh, there's no you know no mystery to what those names mean abaddon and apollyon um, so that's the fifth trumpet. Now the sixth trumpet. We're gonna. I'm gonna try to move a little quicker so we just don't take forever. The sixth trumpet <clears throat> is another picture of uh, of judgment. It says in verse twelve, the first woe has passed. Remember, at the end of the chapter eight, there were three woes that were to come. The first woe now has passed. That was the locust infestation, the demonic infestation. That first woe is passed. Uh, two woes are still to come. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, the first woe is past. Uh, this is probably John speaking, saying the first woe is past, announcing the uh, escalation of judgment. A voice comes from the altar. We're not told whose voice it is. It's probably Christ's voice because it says uh, a voice goes out uh, uh, 
from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So it's uh, putting a distinction between the voice and, and God, uh, the one who sits on the throne there. So it's it's probably Christ's voice that's commanding these angels. Um, this is probably the divine response to the saints' cry for justice. Remember, the martyrs are under the altar. They're crying for justice. And here is the response that comes from the, the horns of the altar uh, releasing the four angels. We'll talk about that in a moment. The horns of the altar, uh, in Exodus 27, the altar was commanded to be constructed uh, with four horns, which just means four corners. Don't think of like animal horns or trumpets on each of the corners or anything like that. They're, they're just corner pieces. They're the four horns of the altar. Uh, sometimes people sought safety and protection uh, by holding on to the horns of the altar, by falling upon the altar and holding it. It was uh, a place, you see it in First Kings chapter 1, uh, verse 50 and 51, First Kings chapter 2, verse 28 and 34. Men fell upon the horns of the altar and they held on to those horns uh, seeking solace so that uh, you know another man that seek vengeance upon them wouldn't, wouldn't take that. They were seeking protection. So the place that was often sought for safety is now where judgment uh, is now where judgment comes from. <clears throat> this is where the voice says uh, to release these angels. Now, there's a lot of speculation about about the angels bound in the Euphrates. Like uh, people, people, I've heard stories of people in boats uh, that give tours of the land, saying down there in the depths of the Euphrates, the angels are waiting. You know, waiting to be released or something like that. Makes you not want to go swimming. Uh, sure enough. Uh, Makes you not want to go swimming in the Euphrates. Uh, but why are these angels bound? What does it say? It says these are, uh, it says in verse 14, the end of verse 14, it says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the third year were released to kill a third of mankind, a third of men. Mankind is a translational choice. Uh, these are the four angels that we saw already in chapter 6. Remember what they were commanded in chapter 6? Beginning of chapter 6, the uh, the four ho- four angels were, uh, were told to hold back the four winds of judgment. And here the angels are commanded to release the judgment. They are being released to release the judgment upon upon the land. Uh, but it says in, in a lot of your translations, it's going to say, I think, no, I think just the King James Version says that they are bound in the Euphrates. Uh, the word is epi. Uh, that's a, the preposition epi. And it does mean in in certain uh, contexts. It can mean by, it can mean on, it can mean upon, it can mean at, it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, prepositions are uh, notoriously um uh, tricky when when translating Greek, it, it a lot depends on uh, what's going on and what the what the author's trying to say. Uh, so it says epito uh, patamo tamegalo euphrate, and the the preposition epi when used with the dative, it's most likely spatial, which means all that to say it should be translated on, upon, at, or near. Um, it, it, they were they were bound at the Euphrates. They were bound near the Euphrates. They were bound uh, uh, upon the Euphrates, uh, the Euphrates, Euphrates River. Uh, these angels are bound at the Euphrates, and they were bound from releasing their judgments. He was. They were told to hold back the four winds. In John's day, the Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire, uh, but the Euphrates, in biblical thought, it was the border of the promised land. It was the border of the promised land given in Genesis fifteen eighteen, 
uh, to Abraham. It was the border that was given to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, verse four. Uh, it was it was the the line that marked off the promised land from uh, the the land of the land that they weren't given as uh, their own. Uh, this land was given to Abraham as a promised possession, and the Euphrates was that boundary marker. It was also from across the Euphrates. Uh, that Assyria came under General Sennacherib uh, and, and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's also um, the across the Euphrates that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. So both of um, both of Israel's main enemies throughout history uh, that that both laid siege to <coughs> the people and destroyed them. Uh, came from the north, came from across this river, Euphrates. So this idea of an army massing from the Euphrates would have been, we're going to see the army in a minute, uh, would have been a terrifying image based on the history uh, of Israel itself. So what John is seeing here, what he's saying here is that now that this demonic horde has been released, has been released inside, and they have been allowed to... Uh, to uh, um, to torment men uh, for a, a, a period of time. Now the sixth angel blows and we're going to see another demonic horde coming. But this time it's not coming from the ground. It's not coming from the abyss up underneath the, the, uh, the land. It's coming from outside the land. It's coming. It's going to be released across the Euphrates and it's going to come into the promised land uh, as an army that would come and, and and lay siege and destroy everything. We're going to see that in a moment. Um, Tacitus, historian Tacitus, in his Annals of Imperial Rome, uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 5, and I use chapter and verse just because I'm used to the biblical reference. It's, it's 4 and 5. It says, The huge stretch of territory between this end of Syria and the Euphrates was controlled by four brigades. There are four brigades of Romans that controlled the stretch of territory between the end of Syria and the Euphrates River. Uh, could it be that these are the four angels holding back? You know, I, I can't say for sure. I can't say, yes, this is what it means. But it sure is interesting that it was four brigades of Romans that were in control of that area, that section. Um, in Jewish Wars 713, Josephus says, uh, we know this is to illustrate that there were, uh, there were Roman legions, uh, there were Roman legions stationed, uh, over across the Euphrates. It says that when he, Titus is who he's talking about, stayed three days among the principal commanders and so long feasted with him, he sent away the rest of his army to several places where they would be everyone best situated, but permitted the 10th legion, famous legion in Rome, to stay as a guard at Jerusalem and did not send them away beyond the Euphrates. Euphrates, where they had been before. Um, so understand that we're going to see that these angels releasing this judgment, it's not that there are four sleeping angels in the bottom of the Euphrates River. Uh, it's that these are the four angels that have been commanded to hold back judgment so that the people of God can be sealed and the judgment of God can be poured out in the form of this demonic infestation of the people of the land. Now that that has taken place, the angels are released uh, to let loose the judgment. Judgment. And when they bring forth this judgment, what we're going to see is an army, an army, a horde of demonic uh, of a demonic army that comes amassing itself against the people. 
but they were, make sure you realize, verse 15, it says these angels uh, and this judgment that comes before is going to come, this, this army of, this demonic army that's coming, uh, it was prepared for a particular time, a particular day, particular hour, particular year. God has still not lost control. The exact moment has been prepared in advance. In Daniel 9 verse 26, it says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's Jesus being crucified. And have nothing. And the people of the prince, that's the Romans, people of the Roman emperor, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be desolation. There will be war. Desolation are, desolations are determined. Even back in Daniel, this event was prophesied. It was foretold. So now the sixth trumpet has blown. The angels holding back uh, the uh, the judgment from the promised land at the boundary of the promised land are, are allowed to release their judgments. And what we see come forth is a demonic army of judgment like you have never seen before and you will never see uh, in uh, in the way that it's uh, the way that it's described. Uh, it's in verse 16 and 17. It says. Uh, so the four angels, let's, let's read 15, four angels who had been released, uh, had been prepared for the hour of the day, the year were released to kill a third of the mankind. And then all of a sudden the scene shift to this army. It says the number of mounted troops, it just takes for granted that the, the judgment that they release is these, uh, is this army. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Um, so you have basically there, the new American standard Bible is going to translate that as 200 million. Uh, the number is obviously symbolic. You can't take it any other way. Um, 200 million, uh, according to there, there, there are not that many horses in the world on the earth today. Uh, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is part of the United Nations, in 2011, uh, there were only about 58 million horses on the planet. Uh, and that number had gone down uh, from 60 million two years before. So if we take the number literally and say this is 200 million, uh, we don't really have anything to worry about because we have to wait for some more horses to show up. Uh, and so... Uh, the the numbers obviously it's obviously symbolic. No matter what position you take, uh, you're going to say what well, you know. Some people think this is going to be China coming at the end of China and Russia at the end, of whatever, whatever. Uh, it's obvious that it's a symbolic number because even if the if all the countries of the earth got together, they wouldn't have this many horses. Which begs the question: Why would they be coming on horses anyway? If it's China and Russia, I mean, uh, some people say, "Well, this is how John described." What he, he didn't really know how to describe what he saw, so he just described it best way. But but I, I mean, I have a problem with that because John did know what a horse looks like, didn't he? I mean, he he did know that. If I'm seeing a tank, you know, I don't know what it is, but I know it ain't a horse. I mean, I, I know it's not a horse. And so anyway, uh, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother ballgame. But the actual words used here are, uh, it li- literally says double myriad of myriads. Uh, that's what it says. And so the word myriad, um, uh, myriadus, uh, it does mean 10,000 in some contexts. So, uh, I'm not, not, it, it very well possibly could say 200, 
million. It could imply 200 million. Uh, but what it says is double myriad of myriads. Um, the idea is that it means double 10,000 times 10,000, which is why it's translated 200 million in, in a lot of different places. But the point, um, the point is that it's an innumerable number. It's a huge number. Uh, many. It's double, a double myriad of myriads. In Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen, it says, "The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands." The word myriads is used throughout the Septuagint, uh, designated an immense number. Uh, which, uh, when it's when it's not used, this is kind of technical, but when it's not used with a numerical adjective. Um, it is it is uh, uh not not meant to be an actual number ten thousand, uh so you, a lot of your translations will say two hundred million but understand they're not actually translating they're they're kind of interpreting they're they're multiplying the number together and figuring it out it actually says a double myriad of myriads that's the literal translation, um uh, the number is designed of course to terrorize the entire empire of hell is now coming in judgment against the Lord. Uh, against the Lord, against the land by the Lord. The fulfillment is the, the fulfillment of this is, of course, duh, the Roman legions and the auxiliaries from all the nations of the empire. The Romans had soldiers from all over the empire that it had conquered from every nation that was under the Roman flag, uh, conquered by the empire, coming against the city of Jerusalem. Um, and this is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Israel in Deuteronomy 2849 through 68. Uh, he says, I'm going to bring a city against you. I'm going to bring a nation against you and they're going to destroy you. They're going to do, you know, all this is in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, there were other immediate fulfillments of that passage by Assyria and Babylon destroying uh, parts of Israel in different times. But the ultimate fulfillment of this happened when uh, Rome came under uh, uh, the judgment of God and destroyed biblical Judaism and the city and the temple uh, for good. Um, the Lord, uh, it says in Romans twenty-eight forty-nine and 50, I'll just read that part. It says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle, which was Roman symbol, swoops down uh, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old, no show, nor show favor to the young. Um, now, the rest of the chapter uh, for the most part, anyway, um, it, it speaks of, it, it, it describes the, the army. It describes this <coughs> demonic horde of 200, you know, million, myriads upon myriads horsemen. It, it describes them. So uh, what we're going to, you know, we can go through that. And, and uh, there's, uh, there's a section in the outline that describes uh, what it all means. But it's pretty much going to say the same thing about these horses and these horsemen. As it said about the locusts, they're going to have the breastplates. They're going to have uh, the different colors. You know, uh, you need to make sure you recognize that in verse 17, John qualifies his statement. He says, this is how I saw the horses in my visions and those who rode them. So these are, you know, the horse is going to have a lion's head and it's going to have a serpent tail and, and all those kind of things. But he's telling us right on the front hand, this is this is how I saw them in the vision. Uh, so it's not saying what they look like. It's saying what they are like. The lion, you know, go through the Old Testament. The lion is fierce and, and all those things. The, the, the serpent, you know, 
stings and is a picture of evil and wickedness and all through. Uh, it could be that they are destructive from both the front and the back, just like the locusts. Um, you know, we see that in Joel chapter two. Um, but the point is that this army has, it's a demonic army, just like we saw in the locusts. It is, uh, it is, um, an army that has been brought forth for judgment uh, upon the land. Uh, and it, it says uh, it's very destructive in its power. So they're monstrous looking. It says, and I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them, they wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire. The word uh, is actually uh, hyacinth, which is a deep blue, a dark purple and of sulfur. Uh, sulfur is the word that we uh, is often trans- translated brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. Fire came, and, fi- and fire and smoke and sulfur, the same three things that we, we saw, smoke referencing the blue, the dark blue hyacinth color, uh, came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, notice they're called plagues there, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur or the brimstone coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like serpents with heads and by and by means of them they wound so <coughs> excuse me man my voice is hurting um, the main thing you need to see here is that fire, smoke, and sulfur, fire, brimstone, and smoke come out of their mouths. And that are, those three things are the plagues that are used to harm them. Uh, Genesis 19, it, it uses the exact same Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone rained down upon them. Uh, smoke rose from the city. Uh, fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur uh, are always used to indicate judgment in the Old Testament. Uh, same thing, Deuteronomy 29, 22, verse, uh, 22 and 23. Um, the destruction of these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, is called a plague in Deuteronomy 29, 22, and 23. So it says here in Revelation, by these three plagues, the fire, the brimstone, the sulfur, and the smoke, are, are men killed. Um, in Isaiah 34, verse 9 and 10, he says, uh, God says, He is sending judgment on the nations. Its streams will be turned to pitch, and its loose and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will be burning pitch, fire and brimstone to judge. In Ezekiel 38, verse 22, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. I will reign upon him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. He's talking about judgment upon Gog and Magog there in uh, Ezekiel 38. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, verse 9, God's protection of David, David David's song, it says, smoke went up out of his nostrils, fire from his mouth devoured, coals were kindled by it. Uh, and in Revelation eleven five, we're going to see that fire comes out of the mouth of the two witnesses as they pronounce judgment. Fire and sulfur, or brimstone, are only used in Revelation to denote judgment. Revelation 14, 10, 21, 8, 19, 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 10. Fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur, always, always judgment, judgment, judgment. Uh, it says, by these plagues, fire, the sulfur, um, the smoke, a third of mankind was uh, killed. So uh, uh, you can look above where we saw all those kind of things, but the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, is the picture here. The the fire, the brimstone, the smoke ascending like the smoke of a furnace. Um, in Josephus' Wars of the Jews, 591, it says, 
So the soldiers, according to custom, opened the cases wherein their arms before lay covered and marched with their breastplates on. These are the horses with their breastplates, as did the horsemen leading their horses in fine trappings. Then did the places that were before the city shine very splendidly for a great way, nor was there anything so grateful to Titus's own men or so terrible to the enemy as that sight. For the whole old wall and the north side of the temple, temple were full of spectators, and, as, and one might see the houses full of such as looked at them, nor was there any part of the city which was not covered over with their multitudes. Nay, a very great consternation seized upon the hardiest of the Jews themselves when they saw all the army in the same place together with the fineness of their arms and the good order of their men. And I cannot but think that the seditious in the city would have changed their minds at the sight unless the crimes they had committed against the people had been so horrid that they despaired of forgiveness from the Romans. But as they believed death with torments must be their punishment, if they did not go on in the defense of the city, they thought it better to die in war." Uh, fate also prevailed so far over them that the innocent were to perish with the guilty and the city was to be destroyed with the seditions that were in it. So we see even as Titus with his army came with all the pomp and splendor, Rome was notorious for psychological warfare. Uh, their, their, uh, their formations and their their battle cries, their their discipline in arms, their just the the sight of them coming over the hill toward Jerusalem, it sent it sent terror through the through the city. But the people that had been seditious, the people that had uh, ran around plundering and killing and murdering in the city, they couldn't turn around. Now they knew that if they just handed the city over to Rome, they would be killed from both sides, whether it be from the Romans or from the people they had been tormenting inside the city. So when you see John's picture of these uh, demonic uh, horse uh, horsemen, this army of, of judgment that has come against Jerusalem, it, it's not a big stretch to see uh, somebody who was actually there at Jerusalem uh, standing on the wall, looking over the city, seeing this army come forward to describe them in such poetic and apocalyptic imagery. Um, this is how they... This is how, indeed, they were seen. But even in this, even when this came about, uh, it says that the people inside the city, just like we just saw, they refused to repent. They refused to turn. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. We've seen all those things going on in the city. The men, we're not going to belabor this point, they refused to repent. They refused to quit their idolatry. By this time, it was being, it was, had already been pro, pro, uh, proclaimed for years uh, since the Apostle Paul and the Apostles themselves that to go on sacrifice and to go on uh, seeking God in the temple and regard Jesus as uh, a false Messiah, false prophet, just a criminal who died on a cross, was idolatry, was to engage in idolatry. They refused to see, cease their idolatry. They refused to repent of their works. They refused to repent of their sin. 
Um, and even in the sight of the seditions and the madness that was going on inside the city and the uh, the demonic horde, the Roman legions uh, filled with nations from all over the Roman Empire uh, that was surrounding the city from the outside, they still refused to repent. They refused to see God's judgment coming upon them, and they're going to they're going to pay the price for it. Uh, in, in Josephus's Jewish War six five three, it says, "Thus were the miserable people." persuaded by these deceivers these seditions inside and such as believed god uh, and such as belied god himself while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation but like men infatuated with either with without either eyes to see or minds to consider did not regard the denunciations that god made to them this is josephus this is a jew this is not a christian josephus is not a christian writer not a christian man he's a jewish man that as far as we know never became a christian but he could understand that the signs that you were seeing were judgments against god uh against this city and in um and uh, finally, we'll, I'll leave you this last quote. In Wars of the Jews 463, it says, Nay, the terror was so very great that he who survived called them that were first dead happy as being at rest already. He's talking about the ones that were surviving in the city while other people died uh, from famine or pestilence or, or were killed. Um, as did those that were under torture in the prisons declare that upon this compassion, those that lay unburied were the happiest. These men therefore trampled upon all the laws of men and laughed at the laws of God and for the oracles of the prophets they ridiculed uh, they ridiculed them as tricks of jugglers. Yet did these prophets foretell many things, talking about the prophets of the Old Testament, foretell many things concerning the rewards of virtue and the punishments of vice uh, which these zealots violated. They occasioned the fulfilling of those very prophecies belonging to their own country. For there was a certain ancient oracle of those men that the city should be taken and the sanctuary burnt by right of war when a sedition should invade the Jews and their own hands should pollute the temple of God. Now, while these zealots did not quite disbelieve these predictions, they made themselves the instruments of their accomplishment so we see in the fifth and sixth trumpet we see the release of demonic judgment we see from the release of demonic judgment from inside the city we see the release of demonic judgment from outside the city as the seditions men and the people inside went crazy uh, we see the ravagings and the murders and the torture and the plague and the pestilence and all those things inside the city. And then at the, after that, we see the uh, the army coming outside the city. So we see God bringing judgment by these two trumpets upon his people. And we have testimony from inside the city and from outside the city that this is exactly what uh, what many people understood this to be as it was happening. And so what we see here then is the tribulation is beginning this time of judgment is beginning where god is is uh, about to destroy the the remnant of his old covenant so that his new covenant uh can be ratified christianity will no longer be seen after this event as a sect of judaism it will be seen as its own uh its own religion its own um 
standing with God through Christ. And that's what we're seeing in the judgment of these things that we see in chapter 9.